Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We are um, winding up a sermon series here this morning, and I wanted to say just a couple of things before we get started. I meant to mention this earlier, but um, one of the books that has been helpful to me as we've been going through this sermon series on spiritual disciplines is called Habits of Grace by David Mathis. And we actually have a couple copies of this in our bookstore, book table, which is near the um, welcome table. And so I want to remind you that that book table is there. We really want to get good books into your hands. And so we have books there that are very affordably priced. Uh, We don't make any money off of them. We just buy them and then reduce the cost so that we can get books in your hands. So it's on the honor system there. If you see a book that you like, you'll see the price tag. Just put the money in the brown box there and take the book. Um, So we trust you here to uh, do this in an honorable way. And this book by David Mathis is a good one on um, the spiritual disciplines. So also regarding preaching schedule here coming up in the next couple of Sundays, next next Sunday Pastor Brian will be preaching to us. And then the Sunday after that, um, we're going to start a new sermon series that's called Route 66. And so by the grace of God, I'm going to be attempting to uh, deliver one sermon per Bible book, and we're going to go through the whole book of the Bi- uh, the whole uh, Bible, touching on every book. So it'll be at least 66 sermons because there are 66 books in the Bible, and so that'll start on September 9th. So if you're looking for just a good kind of bird's eye overview of the grand story of the Scriptures, that's what we'll be attempting to do starting September 9th. There's a copy of that flyer in your worship booklet. So I would encourage you to take a look at that and invite people to come with you starting September 9th. Um, You can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, our passage is in verses 19 through 25 in Hebrews. A lot of questions have been raised and discussed regarding the effect of social media uh, in our lives. Uh, what it's doing to our personal relationships in particular. If you Google, is Facebook ruining friendships? Google that phrase. You might be surprised at how many articles will come up, how many people are asking that exact question. What is Facebook doing to our friendships? Now, there's always a tendency when anything becomes really popular for someone to come along and, you know, be kind of a party pooper and, and criticize it. Uh, so, I, you know, I think there's a lot of value to Facebook. Uh, in some ways, I think it can enhance and uh, lead to increased friendship. But maybe one of the questions we ought to be asking is what kinds of friendships are we having in the age of social media? I read about this survey that was conducted by um, Cigna Healthcare Group in conjunction with uh, UCLA, and they were uh, trying to find out if adults today find themselves lonely. And the result of the study, which was conducted with 20,000 adults, is that more than half of Americans consider themselves lonely. And they subscribe to statements like this, people are not with me, I feel isolated, I lack companionship, 
the friendships that I have are not meaningful. More than half of Americans, according to the survey, feel that way. Now, perhaps that's been the way it's always been. I mean, if we conducted that survey 100 years ago, maybe the results would have been the same. I don't know. But, that, I mean, that's a pretty high number, more than half. And one thing for sure is that a place where that shouldn't be the case is in the church. This is not a place where people ought to feel lonely without meaningful relationships and isolated. We are not here this morning. We don't gather as God's church as isolated, detached individuals. We gather here as a family, as a community. We gather in relationship with one another. And that leads us to this final installment of the basic training sermon series where we will be considering the discipline of fellowship what it is to fellowship with one another. And um, what I've been trying to communicate here through this sermon series is that God has provided for us a number of um, ordinary tasks, that is, ordinary spiritual disciplines by which we can all live extraordinary lives. Uh, The good news is that you don't have to be an extraordinary person to live an extraordinary life. You just have to be willing to use the ordinary means that God gives to us. So we began the series looking at Bible reading. We went from there to prayer. We heard about the discipline of fasting. We heard about giving. Last week we looked at uh, worship, corporate worship, and today uh, the discipline of fellowship. And this text here in Hebrews 10 speaks directly to this. And so if you want to stand, <clears throat> excuse me, if you want to stand, I'm going to read verses 19 through 25 as we think of this discipline. Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God in heaven, would you please, by your Spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your Word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. We'll be focusing mostly here on just um, verses 23 to 25, but um, one thing to, to make clear is that there is something different between friendship and fellowship. Friendship and fellowship are not necessarily the same thing, and so that's part of what I'm trying to show you here today is what is it that makes fellowship in particular distinctive Uh, We can be friends with one another. We can be friends with people from all walks of life. We can be friends with unbelievers and atheists and Muslims. But we can only fellowship with other Christians. And that's what Hebrews 10 is talking to us about. So the first thing that I want to show you here is that fellowship centers 
on what is primary. The center of our fellowship as God's people centers on what is primary. So verse 23 says this, let us hold fast, it says, hold fast to the confession of our hope. Hold fast just means to be firmly committed to something, to hang on to it tightly. And the writer is saying that we need to hold on to our confession. Now, what does he mean by that? We confessed our sins just a moment ago. Typically, when we hear the word confession, that's what we think of. Uh, The word here means something a little different, not confessing our sins, but giving a public statement of belief, taking a stand, articulating something that we believe, and very often that confession happens in the face of potential opposition. So an example of such a confession is something that I witnessed when I was in China in um, July. I was there teaching uh, alongside a church called Early Rain, and this church is a a house church, so it's an unregistered church, an, an illegal church, and there's been some pressure placed on that particular church and the Christians there in Chengdu. And um, right outside the church, they have uh, like a a plaque where a message is posted, and it says this, we uphold the principle that Christ is the sole head of the church and that the church and the state shall remain separated. Under no circumstances shall we register under the religious bureau and even associate ourselves with them in name. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? It's a confession of what they believe. And the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews were undergoing uh, persecution and harassment from the area in which they were worshiping. And so the confession of their hope was something that was done in the face of opposition, very similar to our brothers and sisters here in Chengdu. So that's what is meant here when the word refers to here confession. It's a public statement by which we take our stand. Now, what is it that they're confessing about? It says they're confessing their hope. Now, what would be their hope? Throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews, we know that that hope is the hope of the gospel. Their confession is their hope in the primary importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is that? What is that gospel? What are the very primary elements of the gospel? Well, we can break it up into four um, components, creation, fall, redemption, glorification. Those who believe in the gospel, those who are Christians believe in um, creation, that is that God created the world. He is the maker of all things, and He has created men, women, and children in His image that we all bear, project the image of our Creator. But After creation, there was a fall. That is, we, his image bearers, rebelled against him. We sinned against him. We lived in unbelief. We lived as if he didn't exist, and that resulted in separation between us and God and brought us under his wrath and condemnation. That's what we mean by the fall. That's the bad news. The good news, though, is redemption. That is, that God in his mercy sent His Son Jesus into the world in this rescue project to reconcile us, formerly His enemies, into fellowship with Him that we might be His friends. And we see that here in the first few verses 
uh, the writer tells us a little bit about how that happens. Here in verse 19, he says, we have confidence to enter the holy places, that is to enter into the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, that is his blood shed on the cross, that opened up a new and living way opened up a way for us to approach God, to come into His presence, to go through the curtain, that is the curtain that would have separated us from the Holy of Holies, the curtain that would separate us from God. But through the flesh of Jesus, the end of verse 20, as He gave up His body on the cross, this way is opened up for us to have fellowship with Him. And so now we have a great high priest, one who intercedes for us between uh, ourselves and God, and He reigns over the house of God so that now, verse 22, we can draw near with a true heart and a full assurance, not of our religion and not of our goodness and not of our morality, but an assurance of faith. This work of Jesus, His shed blood to open up this new and living way is received by faith. That's redemption. But then coming after redemption is glorification. Everything I just said to you is past. There's one point of this that is future, that is glorification. Jesus is coming again. And he is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And our bodies are going to be raised up out of the grave. And every tear will be wiped away. And every bit of sin and sorrow and pain will be purged away forever. And we will be with Jesus and one another for all eternity. And that's our hope. And that's, that's our hope. That's the hope of the Christian, and that's what the writer is referring to here, the confession of our hope. The implication here is, in this word confession, is that these believers have publicly confessed that. They've taken a stand. At some point, they have said it out loud. I'm a Christian. I believe that God has created the world and that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior, but I've received Jesus and I'm waiting for Him to come again. Christians confess that. We don't keep it to ourselves. We speak it out. We take a stand on that. This is what Paul mentioned here in 1 Timothy 6. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's public. It's in front of people. It's a little bit like a wedding. I mean, one of the beautiful things about a wedding is the bride and groom stand up and they make a, uh, a commitment to each other. They take vows. They confess their love for each other. But they do it in public because they want everybody to know how much they love each other. It's the very nature of a wedding. Our confession of faith takes place in a similar way. So you might say, well, when does this occur? When, when does this kind of confession occur? Certainly it can occur privately. You know, as people might ask you if you're a Christian or not, you can confess your faith then. But, but notice in verse 23 the plural pronouns here. It's let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So there's an implication that there's something public about this. So, I mean, one of the primary places where this takes place is when people become members of a church. You step up and you confess your faith in Jesus before witnesses. Every month here, we confess the apostles and Nicene creeds. One of the reasons we do that is so that we can out loud, together, as a community, confess our hope in the gospel. Now, what does all this have to do with fellowship? Here's what it has to do with fellowship. It's this, that the confession of our hope that we have articulated together reminds us and keeps 
at the forefront of our hearts and minds what is primary and what it is that holds us together as a body of believers and a community. It is the gospel. That is our hope. That's what ties us together. That's what is primary. There are so many secondary issues that we can agree to disagree on. You know, there is no better way to ruin the fellowship of a community than to take something secondary and try to make it primary. The confession of our hope reminds us, what have I confessed? What if we confess together is true? That's the center of our fellowship. That means we can come together and we can disagree on baptism. We baptized babies today. Not everybody agrees with that. We understand that. We know you don't all agree with that, and that's okay. Do you confess the hope of the gospel? Then we have fellowship. We're together. We're brothers and sisters. We disagree on baptism. It's all right. It's secondary. Charismatic gifts. Do people speak in tongues today or not? It's secondary. We're going to disagree on that. How should a church be assembled? Should it be led by a bishop or a pope or a congregation or elders? There's different opinion about this. Political issues, immigration policy, gun control, tax policy. What you think about Barack Obama, what you think about Donald Trump, those are secondary issues. And if you make those primary, you will ruin fellowship in God's church. We don't confess, we don't get together and confess what we think politically together. That's not what we revolve around. That's not what we're unified around. We're unified around a risen Savior who offers salvation to any who trust in Him. That's what's so important about a confession of, of, of hope. It's like we know what it is we are centered on, and that's what is primary. And we need to keep it primary. So that's the first thing about Christian fellowship. The second thing is that fellowship exists for a specific purpose. There's something that should happen when we get together as Christians. And so you'll see this here in verse 24. What's the purpose when Christians get together? It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, to stir up one another, to encourage one another, to, to, to obey God and to love one another. And um, Verse 25, also not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. That is the day when Jesus comes again. This is an exhortation. It's like, don't be complacent about these things. Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, the opportunity to come to him and, 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 and trust him and live for him, it's over. You know, history is coming to an end one day. So as the last day draws near, what the writer is saying, get busy stirring one another up and encouraging one another. And in order to do that, you have to be together. Again, what the writer here is concerned about is the fact that um, the, the recipients of this letter had been falling away from their Christian profession. I mean, this is written to Hebrews. That's why the book is called Hebrews. Hebrews are Jews. These are Jews who had come to believe in Jesus. They became Christians. But because of the persecution and the pressure that was placed upon them, they started thinking, maybe I ought to go back to be uh, a follower of Judaism. 
And so a lot of Hebrews is spent trying to show how Jesus is so much greater than the high priests of the Old Testament, how Jesus is greater than, than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Testament Judaic religion. And so he's encouraging his readers, no, don't go back to that. Stick with Jesus. But what he's saying here is that one of the primary means by which that's going to happen is when Christians get together and stir each other up and encourage each other and love each other. I mean, one of the first steps toward apostasy is when a person removes himself or herself from the fellowship of God's people. That's a bad sign. The person who never wants to go to church, never wants to be with Christians, it's a step in the wrong direction. So, what is the purpose of fellowship? What does it look like? Well, there's a number of things we could say, but let's just look and see some other passages of Scripture that talk about the purpose of Christian fellowship. One is welcoming one another. Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Christian fellowship should have a welcoming atmosphere. We, we welcome all kinds of people here. And we ought to be the first to reach out to new people as they come in here on Sunday mornings. Go out to them and say hello. Warmly welcome them. We're not so concerned about what their political views are, or what denomination they've come from, or what their skin color is. We don't care. We welcome you. That's Christian fellowship. Secondly, affirming one another. First Thessalonians 5, very clear. Encourage one another and build one another up. Uh, it, it's interesting in the Hebrews text where um, it, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another uh, to love and good works in verse 24. There's the implication that it's something we actually have to think about. <laughs> we got to ruminate on it a little bit. You know, so-and-so seems discouraged. How can I build that person up? What is it that I can say to that person or do for that person that would build that person up? That's what it is to consider this, to think about it to notice people in the situation that they're in and reach out to them and encourage them. You know what? I've never known anybody who has said, you know, I just wish people would stop encouraging me. I've got enough encouragement. Don't they know that? Will people please stop building me up? <laughs> Nobody says that. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you've had enough building up? You've had enough encouragement? No, you haven't. You've never felt that way. All of us need to be built up, and that takes careful consideration about how we can do that. Teaching one another. Colossians 3, our call to worship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching one another. The pastors are not the only people responsible for teaching in this congregation. Uh, the elders and Brian and I are the primary teachers, but according to this text, you can teach each other. But it's hard to teach each other if you're never together. I mean, this is a congregation blessed with some very knowledgeable, wise, experienced, mature Christians. There is a lot to learn here among one another. But again, you need to be together to be taught by one another. But it's not just teaching one another. This is something else that should take place in Christian community and fellowship. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Admonishing. Yes, it's true. We, we, we welcome people. We affirm people. We build up people. That's true. But 
when a brother or sister begins to stray, to reject the clear teaching of Scripture, and to walk from God, the most loving thing that you can do is issue a rebuke to that person. Gently, carefully, lovingly, but to admonish. You're not loving a person by watching that person walk away from God and not saying anything about it because you don't want to be judgmental. That's a hateful thing to do. When someone strays, be willing to admonish. And not only that, but one of the great signs of maturity in a Christian is a willingness to be admonished, (laughs) to take a rebuke humbly and without protest. That ought to be going on in Christian fellowship. And then the last thing, listening to one another. James chapter 1, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. It's one of the greatest blessings, isn't it, when you have somebody who's willing to listen. They're not looking for something to say. They're not looking to fix your problem. They're not waiting for you to pause for a second so they can get their comment in. They listen. They look you in the eye and they listen. And they ask you questions. They don't just say, how you doing? They say, how are you feeling about things? What's bringing you joy in your life? What's discouraging you now? What is bringing you down? How can I pray for you? What are you learning? What's God teaching you? Those are good questions. Those are the kinds of questions people ask when they want to listen. And this is something that should characterize Christian fellowship, listening. So we could go on. There's other things to say. But this is why fellowship exists. So these kinds of things can take place. We can welcome, welcome one another, affirm one another, build one another up, teach one another, listen to one another, and admonish. Last thing, fellowship follows a certain practice. That is, fellowship is practiced in a particular way. And so Uh, You know, the verse that most of us are most familiar with is verse 25 here where it says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So you see how the writer knows that some people were not meeting with Christians anymore. They were staying home and fellowship wasn't taking place and the writer is saying, don't do that. The writer is concerned. This is, this is a bad development if you're neglecting to meet together. So it's very clear in the Scriptures we're to meet together. Now, how can that happen? I mean, in a number of ways. You know, we're meeting together right now, so Sunday mornings is a way to meet together. Um, our ministry teams get together and um, serve and work. Um, the softball teams get together. They, they meet together. That's a way uh, to meet together. But the primary way we seek to facilitate the meeting together of Christians in this congregation is through life groups. Life groups. So these are small group meetings of 10 to 20 people. We get together every week, maybe every other week. And when we get together, we ought to seek to do the things that I just shared with you, to build one another up, affirm one another, teach one another, listen to one another, admonish one another. That's what life groups are for. And this just happens to be the Sunday when we are relaunching our life groups. So we have six life groups that are beginning. Um, They will start in September, probably most of them the week of September 9th. Uh, That's Sunday and the week after. But um, here are the groups. Um, The Jordans leading a group. 
They live in New Yorktown, Sundays at 6.30. Uh, Larry Belcher, leading a group, he also lives in New Yorktown, every other Sunday at 6 p.m. Uh, the Bows, also in Yorktown, every other Sunday. The Maoris and Todd Rourke, living in Muncie, they'll be meeting Wednesdays at 6.30. I, I wish we had more diversity of days, but it, it just didn't work out. Um, so I'm glad we have a Wednesday meeting. Uh, Mary and I, with the Bryans, will be leading a group on Sundays at 6.30. And then those of you who come down from Upland or Marion, uh, there will be a group, a group in, in Spiegel's Sundays at 6.30 p.m. So I want to encourage you to consider which of these groups you would want to sign up for. Um, there are sign-up sheets. They are on the, the welcome table, uh, welcome center, and so they're all out there for you, and you can put your name and your uh, email or phone number, and the leader will get in touch with you and explain to you the details. Um, but this is for everybody. You don't have to be a member to do this. Uh, students, we'd like for you to be involved. If this is your first time here ever, you can be involved in a life group. Doesn't mean you have to come every single time, but it's a good way to facilitate the fellowship that this passage in Hebrews is commanding us to do. Now, just a, a word here to, um, to the introverts among us. Um, I, I know that um, small group meetings can seem very intimidating to introverts, and that going through the small group meeting can prove to be very exhausting. I mean, that's the nature of being an introvert. I'm one of them, so I know what you're talking about. And I, I just want to affirm you as introverts, you need your alone time, you need your downtime, you need your private time, and you need to get that time and not feel guilty about it. And there are times when you got to, yeah, you just got to say, no, I can't meet with people right now. I just don't have the energy. But there's a, a book called Introverts in the Church, which I would recommend to you by a guy named Adam McHugh. And I think it's very helpful, very encouraging. And he says this, healthy introverts are not recluses. Just because we are oriented toward our inner world does not necessitate that we live in a private world. So, you need your alone time, that's true. You need fellowship also. So seek a balance between those things. So let me just try to tie this here to the gospel as we wind up. You know, when the Father sent the Son into this world to shed His blood for sinners and to redeem us, friends, He, he didn't do that just for you. I mean, He did it for you personally, that's true. But he didn't do it just for you. He did it for us. He did it for the body of Christ. He did it for the church. He did it for the family of God. And since he's done that, we have fellowship with him. We can come into his presence and consider God Almighty our friend. But he hasn't just done that for you, friends. He's done it for all of us. You are part of a community. That's part of the deal being a Christian. It's not just for you. You have a family. And what family member never spends time with his family? I know it happens, but we would say that's dysfunctional. <laughs> we need to be together. Therefore, don't neglect meeting together. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. God, I do pray that, that this church would be a place where, um, where we can be loved where we can make meaningful friendships, where we would not feel isolated, uh, 
but where we would be connected and known, accepted and loved by your people. Please make that the reality at this church. In Jesus' name, amen.